Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello, this is Simon Brew. I'm the editor of Film Stories magazine and a very warm welcome to a special episode of the Film Stories podcast. Now, if you're all ready, I'll get it underway. Here we go. In three, two, one. Come with me. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. In movies, movies that had stories. That the story just sucks them in. This is just the beginning. We would be honoured if you would join us. Hello and a very warm welcome to Film Stories with Simon Brew. I am Simon Brew. As always, there's absolutely everything you need to know about me. The aim of the podcast, though, well, title gives it away. I'm here to talk of the stories of films, and I tend to talk about development stories, marketing stories, release stories, production stories, all the bits and bobs, really, that go to make the films that we know and sometimes love the films that we know and sometimes love. Now, this particular episode is an extra special one. It's one of those occasional episodes where I bring in a filmmaker to talk about a a particular project they've been working on. And I'm delighted in this case to be welcoming director Joseph Kaczynski, ostensibly to talk about his latest movie at the time his podcast is going out, Top Gun Colon Maverick. Um, He's also got on his directorial CV, Tron Legacy, Oblivion and Only the Brave. We touch on one or two of those as well. But primarily, this is a chat about the very, very belated sequel to the 1980s much-loved hit Top Gun. Now, that particular movie came out in 1986, was directed by Tony Scott, produced by Jerry Bruckheimer and starred Tom Cruise. But talk of a follow-up to it and a more direct sequel wouldn't begin until about 10, 11 years ago. In fact, the first stories I can find where this was actually becoming a thing went all the way back to 2010, at which stage Jerry Bruckheimer and director Tony Scott were set to be back on board and Tom Cruise was duly interested. Now, the trio had come together in the aftermath of Top Gun to make the ill-fated 1990 blockbuster Days of Thunder. But the idea of going back to Top Gun, well, it was something think that was of interest to director Tony Scott at this point. However, the, uh, the things took a tragic turn when uh, he took his own life in 2002 and the project at that stage was pretty much shelved. Now, what we're going to hear in the chat I have with Joseph Kaczynski is when it sort of came back to life, which was in 2017. It was really it was really clear that this movie was actually going to happen. And it was a meeting that took place between Kaczynski and uh, Tom Cruise, which Kaczynski is going to tell us about. But script work was going on from the early 2010s and uh, from the mid 2010s. And this particular screenplay in the end is credited to Aaron Kruger, Eric Warren Singer, who worked with Kaczynski on the film Only the Brave and Christopher McQuarrie working from a story by Peter Craig and Justin Marks with the characters, the original characters by Jim Cash and Jack Epps Jr. And so it was quite a lengthy development and the film, even when it looked like it had been retired, was still bumbling on and bubbling away to some degree. But really, the the, the catalyst was Kaczynski's pitch to Cruise. Um, Cruise was duly impressed with that 
a script was ordered. And I think the guiding hand of Christopher McQuarrie comes through here as well, that McQuarrie has now worked on, what, 10, 11 different Tom Cruise movies. He's directed the last two released Mission Impossible films and will direct the next two as well. The cast in the end for this was well, led by Tom Cruise, stars Miles Teller, Jen uh, Jennifer Connelly, John Hamm, Glenn Powell, Lewis Putnam, uh, Ed Harris and Val Kilmer are all in the ensemble for this. We also, throughout the course of the conversation, touch on the film's editor, Eddie Hamilton. Um, and I should also note, this was a conversation that took place over Zoom. It's not the brilliant Zoom line. At one point, we lost it altogether, but hopefully some nifty editing has covered that up. I probably shouldn't tell you that bit. Um, but there are little beeps and, uh, and bits and bobs coming from the other side of the call for a, for a change that wasn't down to me. But it was a bit of a busy day in the midst of the Top Gun Maverick junkie. So what I'm going to do, I think that's enough setup. I think that's all you need, really. The uh, your, the next the next thing you're going to hear is a clip from the trailer for Top Gun Maverick. Then we're going to go straight into my conversation with its director, Joseph Kaczynski. Here, then, is that clip. Captain Pete Maverick Mitchell. Let me be perfectly blunt. You are not my first choice. You are here at the request of Admiral Kazansky, AKA Iceman. He seems to think that you have something left to offer the Navy. What that is, I can't imagine. With all due respect, sir, I'm not a teacher. Just want to manage the expectations. What the hell? Good morning, aviators. This is your captain speaking. And we're off. Here we go. In three, two, one. We're going into combat on a level no living pilot's ever seen. Not even him. So that was a clip from Top Gun uh, Maverick. Top Gun colon Maverick, I think. Is there a colon in it? I think there's a colon in it. We'll go with, I'll, I'll get the adjudication on that in a minute. And I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by its director, Joseph Kaczynski. How are you, sir? Are you well? I'm great. I'm doing great. Nice to meet you. So, can, Well, nice to meet you too. Can I ask that killer uh, clickbait question that's going to set the internet alight then? Is there a colon in the film? I think it depends on how it's displayed. In the logo, <laughs> no. But in type, yes, I think that would be correct. In which case we've resolved this. Um, I always wonder what it's like because I've been following your career since I was working at a site called Den of Geek, and and I, I remember Tron Legacy coming round uh, yes. first time. I, I mean, it, it seems such a whirlwind since then. I always wonder though what this bit's like. Um, the moment when you're the director of a big blockbuster film, particularly one that's been delayed and waited for so many times, and then that review embargo lifts all in one go, all these reviews and verdicts on it after such like presumably a pent up period of time. Um, can you like capture what the human bit of that is for you? Well, now I've made five films, so it's changed over my career. Yeah. And now I realize that the success for me, you know, what I determined to be a success is if I, if I liked the movie, if yeah. I had a great time making the film, and if I'm getting the opportunity to make another one, those, you know, and so that to me, you need, you need to get a certain amount of personal satisfaction 
out of what you deter what you determine to be a successful or not successful film, uh, you can't base your uh, experience on what other people say about it because then you're living a life that is kind of in the hands of others, and I don't think that's the way you, you, anyone would want to live. That being said, I, can, I, can, that, I was going to say, <laughs> yeah. That being said, to have great reviews is a wonderful thing, and um, I'm thrilled and so proud of everyone that worked on this movie because we all worked so hard uh, to try to deliver the best film we could, and, and the bar was set very high. So to hear that people are enjoying it um, is is a great a great thing. I'm trying to be very reserved and British and professional and grown up about this, which I, I'm clearly terrible at. It's just, I, I mean, I've not seen a response like this to a blockbuster film for, for a long time, really, certainly outside of superhero land. And, and there's no shade I'm throwing on those at all. Mm -hmm. But for a film of this ilk, the kind of film that we thought didn't really exist anymore, in truth, um, I, I, I'm just curious how much of that gets to you and how much you have to shut yourself off from it, because I hear completely what you're saying. Um, yeah, like I said, it's, it's an interest, you know, timing is everything, I think, yeah. or it's, it's a lot of it. And it, I, at some point I had a concern that, you know, holding the movie for two years, that somehow the film might feel, uh, like it missed its window or, yeah, you know, that people wouldn't be interested anymore, you know, after hearing about it for so long and not seeing it, but it's been interesting that the pandemic in the state of the world now in 2022 somehow has made the film feel more relevant now than I think it would have. And that's just a, um, that's something that you could never anticipate or control or try to game. And uh, it's just, it's great that people are really appreciating the idea of a classic film that feels like a, a summer movie and, and they're excited yeah. to see it on the big screen because that's exactly what we made it for. We made it to be seen on the biggest screen possible with great sound and with a full auditorium of people. And- um, But you, you've finally... always been big screen though. Sorry, yeah. Yes. I was gonna say, you've always been big. I mean, I sat and watched Only the Brave on a big screen. You didn't make that for a phone. No, I, no, no, I, I, that's, I love making movies that look great and have the scale and the scope and, and, and transport you um but this one particularly would have been really sad to release you know on on your phone you know that's just not that's not what it was meant for and and so to to finally be at the point where people are excited to go back to the movies and to have us be coming out you know uh now it just it just feels like it's the right time and and I can't wait for people to see it a colleague of mine came to visit you and uh, the post-production of Tron Legacy uh, and he described this scene to me of how you were sat uh, against this constant noise, this whir of service in the background of digital domain um, with what was being assembled around you. The complexity of it was just staggering. And he described you and you were in your mid-30s then, I believe. And he just said he described you as cool as aircon at that point <laughs> that you, you appreciated it was a press day and it's a little bit artificial. But someone who, after what, two and a half years, I think you've been into the process at that point, mm -hmm. just had some certainty about them. Is that a fair reflection that once you get so deep into a project, you, you've kind of grounded or is that constant nagging insecurity still there? No, I mean, I think I've been lucky in that I've been I've had I always had a very kind of 
firm and, and I guess I'm a very stubborn and determined person in that I'm, I, I, I have an idea of what it is I'm trying to make and I'm just 100% focused on pushing towards that goal no matter what. And uh, that's, I think, a requirement for the job is to be providing that North Star for the thousands of people that are working on a movie so that you're all pushing in the same direction. And you just got to hold on to that, you know, that, that vision, that idea, whatever it is that compelled you to take the journey from the beginning, just keep your eye on the ball, you know, don't let, don't get shaken, don't get pushed off. Um, there's going to be forces and voices and noise, like you said, uh, particularly on the big films, but just stay focused. And if you can hang on till the end, you're going to get there, you know. Does it feel a little bit like that hanging on when you get to the back end of one of these big ones? For sure. No, because you've got to go through audience testing and studio notes and, you know, everyone's got an opinion about it should be this way or that way. And that's just the nature of filmmaking. You know, it's not, I'm not an artist sitting in a studio with a paintbrush, you know, just making my own little thing. You're, um, you, it is a, it's a massive, um, it's a process that requires thousands of people to, to complete it. So you just have to, you just got to believe in that core idea, that feeling, that tone, that image that you can't shake and, and just constantly being pushing, pushing towards it. Because you, you don't take low pressure projects on. I think most of us can notice that from the outside, even your like inverted commas, low budget film, you're having to accurately reflect the lives of real life people, which I'd imagine the pressure of that is three times anything else that you face. Yes. My, I, I, yeah. I, I, but the, the, the thing that all, so my colleague said at the time was um, he's a storyteller. He came back and said he's a storyteller. He's not a computer guy in the middle of a load of servers. It's always the story at the heart of it. And I wonder if you can talk to that a little bit, because like we look at something like Oblivion. I remember the response to that was there's a lot of gloss, there, but there was a lot of story in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, and I, so I always had as a kid, I always had a big imagination. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, I think sometimes the the visual nature of the film sometimes i think distracts people a little bit from the story i'm trying to tell and um you know i think every film i'm learning more and more how to how to make sure that uh that the story is always being told and that that is honestly the thing that really gets me excited about each of these projects it is always the story first um but, uh, yeah, that's why we go to the movies, you know, stories. It's the story that, that, that makes you remember things more than an, an image, you know, or a story driven image is, is the ultimate combination for cinema. Right. And, um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and as a moviegoer, I, I guess you see too, that's the bit that's often neglected, uh, quite a lot. And one of the things that really comes through on Top Gun Maverick for me, and I, I'll drop my cars now. I absolutely bloody love the film. Oh, I mean, great. I, I just it's thought it was sensational. Um, but the thing that I wrote in my write-up of it, and I've not written this about uh, a, a film for a long, long, long time, is it had something of um, James Cameron's Aliens about it, in that it's one of the few times I've walked out of a blockbuster movie and could remember the name of more than five characters. Wow. 
Great. And that's, the call signs helps, right? <laughs> so. Yeah, it, he- it helps, but I've watched lots of films with call signs and, and nicknames and stuff like that. And I, I'm just curious what state this was in when you got to it, because I've been writing about Top Gun 2 for ages. And, and with, the, with all due respect, I didn't see this coming. I didn't know this was where you were going. I didn't know this because I don't watch trailers or anything. I go okay. into these things pretty cold. Um, and so I, I'm curious, at the point that you come aboard it, where is the where is the script for this? Where are the characters for this? And what's your imprint on the story? Um, it was a, a five years ago, Jerry Bruckheimer sent me an early draft of the script that was a completely different story, I would say. It did have a yep. couple, it did have a couple important elements in it that we did keep. Um, but I uh so I went back and watched the first Top Gun as a director who had made three films versus the 12 year old kid that watched it for the first time. And what I noticed was that it is a drama at its heart. Yeah. It's a, it's a rite of passage story wrapped in this kind of action movie exterior. So, and the thing that really resonated with me was the friendship between goose and Maverick. That's the thing I think that people remember more than the romance of that film. So to me, the idea that the central relationship of this film would be between Maverick and Goose's son, a reconciliation set against a mission that would take them both into deep into enemy territory seemed like a very right place to start. And when I pitched that idea to Jerry, he said, you got to you got to talk to Tom about this. Because what I didn't realize at the time was Tom didn't want to make the movie. Yeah. So we flew to Paris. Jerry and I flew to Paris. Um, Tom was shooting Mission Impossible. We got 30 minutes of his time. And I had a half hour to pitch this film. And I, I started with the Maverick Rooster relationship. I pitched the open, the Dark Star opening where we find yeah. Maverick 36 years later and what he's doing. I pitched the idea of shooting it all in camera, which I knew Tom was a requirement for Tom, but I had an idea of how we would actually be able to do it. And then I pitched him the title, which at that point they were calling Top Gun 2. I said, no, it's, it's Top Gun Maverick. It's a character-driven yeah. story. It's a, it's a rite of passage of this man, you know, who's given everything to aviation, but is alone. And the journey of him finding a family by the end. And Tom, you said, go on, sorry. Tom picked up the phone, called the head of Paramount and said, we're making a sequel to Top Gun. And he like greenlit the movie in the meeting. And uh, (laughs) so we had the fundamentals of the story. And then it was a matter of writing a script. We had to figure out what the mission was and all that stuff. So that that began, you know, a year and a half process of writing the script uh, before we were ready to shoot. So you, you said you went back to the original Top Gun. I wonder uh, if, if you have a Steven Soderbergh moment sometimes when you're you're looking at other films, appreciating you had three films under your belt. But I always remember the interview Soderbergh did where he said he looks at any film and usually can work out how to make it. He looks at something like Mad Max Fury Road, which has been, which has been mentioned in parallel to Top Gun Maverick. And he says, I've got no idea at all how to do it. And, and that's Soderbergh with however many films of all sorts of scale under his belt. Do you look at Top Gun and, and there's the bit of you that just goes, yeah, I know exactly how to do it. Or is there just terror in your eyes at the thought, how do I do that? 
I was just finishing Only the Brave, and I had just worked with Jennifer Connelly and Miles Teller, and I suppose yeah. I was in that kind of paternal that paternal relationship. It's a different one in that movie, but there is some similarities, certainly. And for whatever reason, I just had this image of Tom and Miles being the center of this film. I had a picture of Miles with me when I talked to Tom because I had just done a movie with Miles with blonde hair. I think I photoshopped a mustache on him. And I said, I think he might be the, the one, you know? Um, so I think I knew tonally what I was reaching for. Um, but, you know, no idea how much work it would be to actually get to the point we are today to, to actually translate it into the screen, you know? Um, but it's good. You don't know at the beginning, you know, it's good. I didn't know what I was getting into with Tron legacy. I'd never made a movie before. Um, it's good to go in not knowing because you might turn around and run for the Hills. Um, yeah. You know, the, the old never tell me the odds kind of thing. Yeah. Never tell me the odds. Exactly. Yeah. Never, never tell me the odds. Um, I figure everyone else is going to ask you about um, fl flying and the extraordinary aerial sequences. So I want to bring it just a little bit down to earth and just talk about, um, I think it's Eddie Hamilton was your editor on this. And one of the things that really struck me is, again, it's a long time since I've seen one movie that commits so much to one single mission to the point where, and I'm going very spoiler light, at the point we see the pilots tackle the mission, we know it as well as they do. Um, it's been so drilled into us. Um, I'm really fascinated by the edit on this because, they're, they're, first of all, it just feels absolutely packed tight. Um, the, the beats are hitting. But second of all, just in terms of the comprehension of what's going on, um, it, it's, it's absolutely clear as day. Can you take me into that process a little bit, what the challenges were, and if there was a more complex version of this? The mission was designed in, uh, with the Navy. I asked them the question very early on when uh, the first draft I was doing with Eric Warren Singer, who's an incredible writer. We you asked the, the Navy. The Brave, yeah. Yes. We asked them, what is, the, what is the absolute most terrifying mission you could ever imagine? And they laid out essentially this mission, you know, four planes, low level ingress into enemy territory, defended by SAMs, you know, through a mountainous valley with a high G pole going into a, a, a GPS um, jam target requires lasing, <laughs> the buddy laser, you know, it's like they laid it out. And we were like, great, that's the mission. The one thing they added, which we didn't do, was that, and we do it at night, which oh, I said, great. okay, can't do that. Not, not interesting to see it at night, but we'll do it at dawn, you know. Um, so that was the mission. Then we broke, we realized the structure of the film would be, you know, we meet Maverick, we bring him back to Top Gun. We train for the mission. We break the mission into three pieces. We train for each piece. None of the pieces are working. Maverick puts all the pieces together, proves it can be done. They go, they execute the mission, and then everything goes wrong. That was the structure of the film. Um, the secret weapon of this movie is Eddie Hamilton, as you pointed out, um, yeah. having made two Mission Impossibles, I think. Yes. He had edited two Mission Impossibles before making this movie. So his precision and understanding of action and storytelling uh, is, is absolutely key to making that all work. And Chris McQuarrie, 
um, yeah. who's made 12 movies with Tom and probably written four or five Mission Impossibles. I think they're on Mission 8 now. I was know, the yeah. one <laughs> who hammered in this idea of explaining to the audience exactly what the mission is to the point where they know it, like you said, as well as the yeah. characters, so that by the time you get to the third act, you can just enjoy it. And my first approach to that initial mission brief was much more like grounded in reality. Sat grainy satellite photos and, you know, much more what the Navy would actually have. And Chris convinced me correctly that, no, this is the time to, you know, to do the 3D fly through and make it absolutely clear exactly what it is they need to do so that they don't have to think about it in the third act. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's like I got the the dream team on this movie in all departments um, and, and, and benefit from Tom's 40 years and Jerry Bruckheimer's 50 years of experience and 100 movies they've made collectively to put this together in the right way. So I don't want to, I don't want this to be a lockdown question per se, because Lord knows I think we're all done with those. But my only question there is, was there any temptation to tinker in that prolonged period while it was presumably finished and locked? Because I, I remember this being asked of the Bond team as well, that when you're sat on something for so long that you know is done, was there any point where you wanted to go back in? No, we, we really believed in the movie. Um, we were all really happy with it. Uh, and we all went off and shot other things, which is yes, probably a good thing. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, that's probably the most important thing is that we were all very busy trying to stay busy through the pandemic and shoot other projects. So um, we didn't tinker with it. Um, we waited for theaters to open. And we, you know, by the way, we thought we kept on putting, you know, we thought we were going to be out Christmas 2020, then I remember then summer 2021, then, then November 2021. So like it wasn't we didn't know how long it was going to be. It was just constantly rolling thing, which was obviously a little torturous, but now we're here. So. Yes. How God. many trailers can you cut for one film? I know. I, I know. It's, that it's was the... really, it's, that's, that's brutal. Um, and so I, I mean, I'm coming to the end of my time. So I, I mean, obviously I need to find out if you're now going to do hot shots three for us. Now you've done top gun two. If yeah. we're going back into days. Of I, was, I thought you were going to ask if I was going to do risk, risky business. Uh, part two. No, yeah. I, 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 well, no, I'm more interested in Days of Thunder Trickle, I think would be the, uh, if we're following the formula. Trust me, but, I, I, um, I've, I've tried, I've tried many times. <laughs> but my, if I can ask one last question of you, you told a lovely story once of when you were making Tron Legacy of how David Fincher helped you out, that he took you into the post-production of uh, his Benjamin Button film and showed you some of the work that was being done there and how that could help with your film as well. I just wonder, could you tell me what the impact of a filmmaker like that talking to you when you're on your first film is? And also, are you at the point yet where directors are coming to you for similar levels of advice? Um, well, David Fincher, you know, beyond that, you know, showing me stuff on Benjamin Button, which was great. I mean, David was the one who really gave me my first break in Hollywood, yeah. um, which was, it was 2006. I had been pitching on commercials for 15 months. I probably pitched on 30 yeah. commercials and it gotten nothing. 
no one wanted to take a chance on me doing a commercial for them. And it was really tough time um, for me just because I was failing over and over and over and over again. And David Fincher um, had gotten a commercial, uh, an op opportunity to shoot a commercial for a, a new video game called Gears of War um, that yep. came out then. And right at that time, his movie Zodiac was greenlit and he was unable to do the commercial. And he called the agency up and said, why don't you let Joe take a crack at it? You know, I got his back if he fails spectacularly, but, um, but uh, you should let him take a swing at it. And they did. And that commercial was my first kind of nationwide commercial, which led to a Halo commercial, which led to another Halo commercial. And, and that was kind of the thing. All of a sudden I had a reel that I could show to Disney and that convinced them to let me do the teaser for Tron Legacy. So David, you know, believed in me before I had done anything, which is um, huge. And I will be eternally yeah. grateful for that. And uh, yeah, I still do. In fact, I, I, I showed him Spiderhead just a few months ago to, um, you know, to get his thoughts. And uh, it's, it's, it's really important because um, without those, without those breaks or someone t believing in you or someone vouching for you, it's really hard to kind of get started. Well, I think the reverse is about to be true once Maverick, Top Gun Maverick goes out into the world. I, I genuinely think it's an extraordinary achievement and I congratulate you and your team on it. Uh, Joseph Kaczynski, thank you so much for sparing the time. And that brings to an end my conversation with Joseph Kaczynski for Top Gun Maverick. Now, uh, little bits of necessary administration. Top Gun Maverick, at the point this podcast is released, is playing in cinemas, I think, around the world, actually. It's certainly out in the UK. Um, I got to see the film on an IMAX screen. I'm, I, I, I genuinely thought it was something quite special. Um, and if you are going to seek the film out, I would just suggest the biggest possible screen you can find. I mean, there's a real effort that's been made with the, with the film to make it a big cinema movie. And I just think it, it's a great way to see it. It's just on a massive IMAX screen. IMAX hasn't paid me for this or anything. I just think it's, it's a really quite wonderful way to watch one of the most fun blockbusters I've seen in an awful long time. Which brings me to the end then of this special episode of Film Stories. I'm not going to wax lyrical over Top Gun Maverick. I've written a, I've written a review of it. You can find it on our website, filmstories.co.uk. Uh, you can find more from me on Twitter at Simon Brew, more from the entire Film Stories project at Film Stories Pod. Uh, I've just told you the website. If you go to store.filmstories.co.uk, that's where you can buy all of our magazines. There are over 40 issues of them now. Uh, our sneakers Blu-ray for those of you in the UK where we've put together extra features, uh, exclusive extra features as well. Or at facebook.com slash filmstoriesonline, youtube.com slash filmstories. And uh, if you like this podcast, you can support it over at patreon.com slash simonbrew. But I, I think you've probably had enough of me for now, so I'm going to leave you all in peace. I thank you as always for your ears and I thank you for your time. I'll be back soon with your regular episode of Film Stories. You all take care. Bye bye.